Hello and happy Ada Lovelace Day. Uh, we're resharing a podcast episode that we recorded uh, two years ago in 2018 with Sue Sharman Anderson, who founded Ada Lovelace Day at this point 12 years ago, but then 10 years ago. And it's still a really relevant episode. I listened back to the interview and just felt like we should absolutely share it again. Things are slowly changing for women in tech, but not nearly fast enough. And we also thought it'd be a nice opportunity for to do a little shout out to some of our favorite repair heroes, women. The first two are on YouTube. Uh, one is Jessa of iPad Rehab, who's an amazing component level repairer of uh, mobiles and tablets and computers in the US. And she's sharing her skills and teaching a whole new generation. And there's also SheFix, which is a really cool YouTube channel based in Berlin, um, aiming to teach women uh, skills and basically targeting the non-usual suspects. Then there's uh, Repair Revolution, uh, a garage in Seattle, Washington, that is for um, basically women and genderqueer mechanics. And it's super inspirational to see their work and to see the support they get from the public. And lastly, um, who inspired us a lot here in London, Jenny of the London Bike Kitchen, um, she's a great repair role model, and she really inspired us to start our own group of women getting technical and learning to repair together called Rosie the Restarter. Um, and you can join that at therestartproject.org slash Rosie. And I just wanted to recognize that in our field, um, you know, I think that women who who are engineers, who get technical, who repair stuff, who maintain stuff, they're often quite invisible even more invisible than some other women in STEM. So think about those women electricians, the women who work in trades, women who are behind the scenes in shops repairing things. They're also really deserving of celebration and recognition on Ada Lovelace Day. And with that, I'll leave you with this uh, really great episode with Sue Sharman Anderson. to the Restart Radio Show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we don't focus on all those new shiny, shiny things to buy. Instead, we focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. And our monthly community electronics repair events here in London that we call Restart Parties are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter, and I'm co-founder of the Restart Project, and I'm joined today by Isabel Lopez, our communications intern. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> and it's important to say you're also our resident science, technology, and society scholar, mm -hmm. so welcome. And today we're really excited to be joined by Sue Sharman Anderson, who's done so much to promote girls' and women's participation in technical fields. Um, Sue founded the Ada Lovelace Day 10 years ago. Welcome to the show, Sue. Hi, hi. Um, we saw that uh, Ada Lovelace Day is going to be 10 years old this year. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Somewhat shockingly to me. I, I did not expect uh, to, to be doing it 10 years later. But this is our 10th Ada Lovelace Day in October this year. And can you tell us, um, people who haven't heard of it, although I hope a lot of you already have heard of it by now, um, tell us what Ada Lovelace Day is and why you founded it. 
it is an international celebration of the achievements of women in science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and it really is a, a global phenomenon now. Um, every year we run uh, what I like to call a, a kind of STEM cabaret in London, where we get women from across the UK to talk about their work um, and and to be entertaining uh, and, and, you know, in a sort of relaxed, informal, theatre-like setting. Um, and people have really kind of taken that idea of, of an event that celebrates women in STEM to heart. And so we have independent organisers putting on events literally all around the world, like on every inhabited continent. It's, it's kind of amazing. Wow, that's that's really cool. And I, I did attend one of your live events um, in London, and it was I really super inspirational and high energy. And um, I saw a lot of students there as well, which was really cool. Um, but how, so how did it spread? Because I think it's one thing to do a really you know interesting live event and to um, shout about it on the internet, but it's an, quite another thing we know um, to help people replicate it and have it spread. So how did you go about that? It was all quite organic, really. So Ada Lovelace Day itself started um, it was around 2008, and I was starting to get a bit fed up of going to conferences and not seeing women on stage. Um, and originally, my idea was to run a conference for women in tech and didn't quite sort of have the budget for that. So instead, it became a day of blogging. Um, and the... The challenge there was that uh, immediately people started blogging about women in STEM more broadly, not just tech. Um, and so the the event didn't really kick off until the next year when we did a, a very informal sort of unconference style event. And then it was sort of um, 2011, people just started doing events themselves. Mm -hmm. um, this was nothing that I did to... Um, suggest or organize or promote it just kind of happened and then each year we've had kind of more and more events we we had a huge number of events in uh 2015 because that was lovelace's uh bicentenary yeah so, perhaps um, you can tell us a little bit more about why you picked ada lovelace and, and what day you picked for this for this day so lovelace ada lovelace was the first computer programmer um, she was working with Charles Babbage, who had invented uh, a machine called the analytical engine, which was essentially a mechanical computer. And it had a lot of the same sort of attributes that modern computers had. So, uh, you know, it had memory, it had conditional uh, branching, it had loops. Uh, he even designed a printer for it, um, but he never built it. In fact, he never actually finished the plans for it. Um, and Lovelace was fascinated by his ideas. And she, um, she understood that this machine, if it had the right algorithm, could produce art and music. That it could not just calculate numbers. You could actually do a lot more with it. Um, and she, so she wrote uh, a translation of... Uh, a paper by an Italian mathematician called Luigi Manabria, who had seen one of Babbage's uh, lectures, and she translated it from the French into English. And Babbage said, well, you know, you understand the analyst's tension. You know, add, add some footnotes. You know, you can ex explain bits that aren't clear. And so she tripled 
the paper's length and in those footnotes, and I love the fact that they were just put these massive, massive footnotes. Um, she actually wrote a program to calculate Bernoulli numbers. And this was the uh, most elaborate program that was written at the time. It was more elaborate than ones that Babbage um, had written. Uh, it was most complete and it was the first published. So she is seen as the first computer programmer. And she was, you know, she was an amazing woman um, to be doing this in, uh, you know, 1940, uh, sorry, 1840. Um, she's working on this, 1843, the paper comes out. It, it's just an amazing feat, in my opinion. And I mean, I think now I can't appreciate how potentially how unknown a figure she was, partly because of your work in the past 10 years. I think she's gained a, a really huge profile um, in terms of, um, you know, in, in, in tech history and the way people perceive uh, computing even. Um, but, you, I mean, before you got started with this, um, did, you know, were, pe- were students being taught about Lovelace's contribution in school or was this something that, um, that was almost like an underground kind of, you know, piece of knowledge yeah, or story? It, it was a very focused uh, community, I think, that knew about Lovelace at that point. I mean, certainly she's not a figure that is on the school curriculum. Um, but people like the, um, you know, uh, BCS Women, the, the British uh, Computing Society's women's uh, group, uh, they knew about her. Um, yeah, there's a, there were a few other organizations with, you know, Lovelace medals or colloquiums. Um, and there's a computing language named after her, Ada which is um, for kind of really security uh, conscious environments. Like I think, you know, it's for plane controls and that kind of stuff. So obviously, you know, if you program in Ada, you know about Lovelace. (laughs) But she was a fairly kind of niche figure. And in fact, I'd not heard of her. I was kind of sitting there in the early 2009 kind of going, what am I going to call I've got this idea, this day of blogging. Um, what am I going to call it? And a friend of mine said, oh, you should name it after Ada Lovelace. And I'm like, what, who? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, looked her up on Wikipedia, of course, um, and just thought she was a really uh, amazing figurehead. And, and I think she's also emblematic in another way because um, there were and are a lot of people who will argue that that what she wrote wasn't a computer program, that she wasn't the first, that she doesn't deserve the credit that she's got, that she was just some, you know, delusional socialite. Um, And and a lot of her biographies are really kind of weak. um, And, you know, it's slightly frustrating from that point of view, because when a man is the first to publish something. He pretty much gets all the credit, regardless or not of whether he was the first to do something. And and the other issue is that, you know, when men collaborate, then, you know, that's seen as equal partnership, whereas when women collaborate, oh, well, you know, obviously the guy did it all. And yet, obviously, Lovelace and Babbage collaborated, but that doesn't, to me, detract from the the work that she did and, and the... Just the um, the thought of writing a program. I think any programmer will will sympathise with this. The thought of writing a program without a working computer, without even finished design. So she couldn't test it. She couldn't iterate. She couldn't. What she had to work everything out from first principles. And uh, that still, even kind of ten years later, I'm like, wow, that's just amazing. You know that level of commitment and. You know, 
the effort required to hold that design in her head and work out all the programming and never be able to test it. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. So I feel like um, role models like Ada are very important today. And like the fact that you say that, you know, we don't know that, that much about these women who did impressive things and who could be motivating girls and women to go into into STEM careers. Um, so, you know, what's the what's the situation now? What's what's the situation for ADAS today and accessing STEM careers and education? Well, role models are really important. And there's so much research that shows us um, how influential role models are. And they're particularly important. Girls and women need to see female role models more than men do. So for me, it's like, you know, creating new role models is, one of the most important things that we collectively as a society can do for girls and for women. Um, because the, the statistics are still not great. And, you know, we are still looking at kind of around 9 to 10% of engineers are women. Um, in computer science, you know, the numbers are still not great. And, you know, they're not increasing. Um, the number of girls taking A-level physics has not changed in 30 years, mm -hmm. despite huge amounts of work. And so I think, you know, we have an awful lot of work to do. And part of this is because this is huge cultural change. Right. This is not j just about um, telling girls when they're sort of 14 or 15, hey, yeah, there's this stuff called STEM and it's really interesting and you should really do it. Um, we have to be focusing much younger because we know, for example, that girls have a comprehension of gender stereotypes by the time they're four. And their understanding of gender stereotypes correlates with their um, gendered behavior age five. So we need to be looking much younger and we need to be focusing on... Um, all the age ranges and I think one of the problems that we have is that there's a lot of organizations and companies who want to do one-off interventions um, at the sort of teen age range um, and they, they, they want to do that because essentially it's a marketing and branding exercise and they're not so keen on on supporting either older women So if you've been through university, come out the other end, you know, there's an awful lot of support needed there because it's actually really quite challenging when you graduate with a STEM degree and you don't know what to do next. And careers advice is, there's more of it now at universities than they used to be, but there's a lot of careers advice um, lacking and particularly around explaining career paths. Um, equally, you know, at the very young and sort of kindergarten, primary school, and, you know, there's not enough being done there as well. Um, and the problem is that these are two very unsexy areas um, of work, you know, in, in terms of getting that work done and funded. That's actually challenging because companies are mostly, as far as I can tell, kind of focused on, on marketing. Um, and those two demographics are maybe not necessarily um, as attractive as the sort of teen market where you get that sweet spot of, you know, you're working with children and, and everyone appreciates that, but those children are also old enough to 
take in your brand messages, which I know makes me, you know, perhaps sound slightly cynical. Yeah, I was going to say, Sue, I was going to say, we, we, we've <laughs> tried to work with um, yeah, secondary school students just partly because their, their level of dexterity and their ability to actually finally mm. engage with gadgets and um, able to, you know, to, um, to have more success at fixing and, and um, tinkering. Um, however, it's been put to us that, you know, it's almost like we need to reach uh, girls when they're younger. We need to kind of, um, in a sense, we need to do that culture change that you were talking about, like um, have yeah. girls imagining themselves tinkering and taking things apart at a much earlier age. Um, yeah. There are some challenges there as well, though. Yeah. <laughs> As you were saying, so it's not just about access and education, but actually like having the confidence to stay and continue in your career. And, you know, you have like these um, ceilings and like women don't really get to major positions in like labs or tech uh, environments. So what do you do about that? Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's really challenging. I mean, personally, um, I have a degree in theology. And um, when I graduated, the industry was in, this five, in the middle of a five year hiring freeze. So there were no jobs, um, which meant that it was incredibly hard to get a, a position as a, in a master's or a doctoral position. And I had no idea what to do. There was nothing available to say, okay, you've got this degree, you love your subject, um, you know, we're going to try and help you work out how to continue. There was none of that. And so I ended up going into science publishing instead and then became a music journalist. Uh, and then got into technology and designing websites and stuff in the late 90s. So, you know, I often use my own career as an example to women to sort of say, look, you know, your career path might end up being a little bit weird, and that's okay, you know, because the the days of having a straight career path, having a career ladder, I mean, that idea is so outmoded now, the idea that you... You go from job to job, and each job is a progression, and everything's in a nice straight line. Life's not like that anymore. Right, um, that's we one of the. To- yeah, sorry, I just wanted to tell you that, that I I did some binge listening of your podcast, and just uh, so everyone knows, you have a, an excellent podcast where you interview women in tech fields, and um, I found something about it. It's I, what I really like about what you do is you you interview women about their kind of career history and how you let them kind of tell their meandering stories and. Um, I find, but in, 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 and additionally, what I find so amazing about the, your podcast is just hearing so many women voices on technical issues. And um, it especially struck me as a as a binge listener because I think I must have listened to five or six in a row. And it had this like really strong impact on me. I don't even know how to say I wasn't expecting to feel so moved or kind of, um, yeah, I just... It's something, and it made me realize how infrequent that experience is, um, and how how much a part of like your your work is actually storytelling and interviewing and helping women tell their stories to other women. It, it is. It has to be narrative. It has to be about people's personal stories because that's how we relate to the world in general. We create stories, and that's how we make sense of everything. How we understand our position. <laughs> in the wider world 
you know, within our peers. I mean, all the time what we're doing is, is telling stories. This is why social media is so powerful, things like Twitter and, and Facebook, because we're constantly telling tiny little stories. You know, what are you doing today is an opening for a story of I did this and then that happened. And it's such a fundamental human attribute storytelling. I mean, it, it goes all the way back to you know, the dawn of, of human culture and, and intellect. And to me, this is how we connect. I mean, the statistics are interesting. And I, I am an absolute statistics nerd. And I really love a good spreadsheet. But <laughs> stories are far more powerful. You know, the facts are frequently, unfortunately, in this area, a little bit depressing. Stories are more uplifting. And I've always wanted Ada Lovelace Day to be really positive, to people to, um, you know, look at it and, and see what we do and come away feeling inspired. I mean, that to me is like the ultimate, um, the ultimate goal is, is to make women feel inspired about their own careers, their own lives, their own passions, and to legitimize all that. Right. Know, because certainly um, I did not feel like a legitimate geologist when I was at university. And in part, that was because I have this sort of artsy side. You know, I would spend way too long drawing fossils um, and not get enough done in the lab time, you know, and someone who'd kind of <laughs> crayon uh, sort of horribly basic diagram would get better marks than me because, you know, they'd done the 10 we were supposed to do. And that sat very poorly in that environment. There was no one there who kind of really understood how much I loved writing and drawing and music. And I love science too. And this is where, you know, the, the challenge that we have, you know, slightly more broadly than just women in STEM is accepting different types of people have an interest in STEM. It's, it's, it's STEM really genuinely is for everyone. You know, there will always be something that you can get into, even if you think of yourself as, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm much, much more sort of artsy, uh, much more humanities. You know, um, we need to get, this is, goes back to, you know, C.P. Snow's two cultures. Um, we need to, you know, really think about how we um, engage the art when we're discussing STEM. Because, you know, when I think about the arts a lot, you know, and STEAM, when you add the arts into the acronym, you know, quite often it, it goes the other way around. It's about STEM going into the arts rather than the arts going into STEM. And that's, to me, it's like, you know, we all have a wide variety of passions. We, we don't have to just do one thing. Yeah. Um, and you said, um, I, I wanted to ask a little bit more about your story because I actually find your story kind of inspirational, uh, founding the event and even some of the work you did before then. Um, but you've come a long way. So I know that you... Basically, um, from uh, from reading your website, you and it, through a lot of um, sure blood, sweat, and tears, um, made Ada Lovelace Day what it is today without necessarily um, massive amount of funding. Can you tell us um, if you've gotten a little more support from the industry and um, if you've been able to uh, potentially, hopefully, um, uh, pay for your time that you spend on it? Yeah, so um, we are mostly sponsor funded. Um, and we've had some fantastic sponsors. Um, we had Arm, who supported us for four years. Um, UCL Engineering have supported us for several years as well. Um, and, and that funding is absolutely essential. Um, we 
still, in fact, I am currently in funding season. So I am sending out a lot of emails to companies and saying, hey, you know, we do this work. We'd, we'd love it if you'd get involved. Um, because it is a very difficult time to be trying to ask companies to fund. Um, there is a lot of competition. There is a lot of um, you know, the third sector in general that is um, looking at uh, exactly kind of where they get their money from. Companies are looking at where they're spending their money. Kind of money is tight everywhere. Talking to different organisations about um, how they get funding. So we've actually just set up a Facebook group for women in STEM organisers to talk about funding um, because we're actually not a um, yeah uh, a, a charity um, because there's a whole. Way, there's a lot of money that goes into making a charity a charity that I'd rather spend on doing the work. So yeah, yeah. funding is still a massive, cha- massive challenge. Yeah, yeah, no, that's I believe me, I know that. <laughs> um, and how to keep it light and how to keep it open and um, yeah, and not get bogged down. But that so- sounds like um, you've come a long way from the early days. I also wanted to ask you, um, as you were an early blogger, and, and I think you were you were a music journalist, as you said, um, before all of this, and um, you were a co-founder of the Open Rights Group in the UK, which promotes digital rights and freedoms. And um, I was wondering at that point in those, um, I guess, the early 2000s, what were the issues that were motivating you then, just, just before you started um, Ada Lovelace Day? So I think um, with the Open Rights Group, uh, that was a slow dawning sort of awareness that um, there were a lot of problems around copyright in particular. So, I mean, this really sort of came out of the communities that I was in in the sort of early um, 2000s where there was a lot of people suddenly around me um, talking about copyright, talking about digital rights, um, you know, right to, to um, you know, do parodies and satire and, and, and you know, what fair fair use, they call it in America, fair dealing in the UK, um, although we generally tend to call it fair use across the board. But, um, you know, what is it? What is a fair use of a piece of work? And what are the creator's uh, rights? And, and where do the rights of the creator and the rights of society meet? How do we decide where they meet? And actually, when you look into the history of copyright, um, it, it's not—it's never been about individual creators. Um, it's always been about uh, actually the Disney company um, yeah. protecting uh, you know, their assets. The creators themselves often um, are, have not been uh, recognised as they should have been for the work that they've done, but the company that they work for. Uh, benefits from every copyright extension and every um, campaign to, you know, clamp down on on copying. And and I'm not a a sort of uh, copyright minimalist. I think copyright as a creator, I absolutely understand the the necessity of copyright. But I think our current system is um, weighted too far towards the corporate interest and does not take into account um, the individual creators and the individual users um, yeah. as much as it should do. So, I mean, that's still an issue that I'm I'm quite uh, frustrated about. Um, 
but yeah. So are we, but from a different perspective. So some of the laws that you talk about um, have actually been used to prevent people from repairing and modifying hardware that they own. Um, and we're seeing a big uh, pushback in the United States with the right to repair movement. And did you ever foresee uh, farmers lobbying for the right to <laughs> modify their own tractors in the United States when you got interested in that issue? I know. I mean, the, the way in which, um, digital rights management especially has insinuated itself into um, so many different areas of, of life. I mean, you know, the, the whole kind of uh, tractor problem is mind-boggling, the fact that... And these, these tractors are not cheap, you know. We are talking about serious investment to buy one of these tractors, and then when it goes wrong, you can't fix it yourself. You can't change anything you, you you can't maintain it it's all got to be done by the manufacturer and that is to me it, it is absolutely absurd and and i think we tend to uh we've gotten used to that kind of stuff in cars because a lot of people just don't have the the time or the know-how or the inclination to be repairing their own cars these days so you know we sort of accept it that, oh, this has got to go to the garage. Um, but when you're a farmer, it's like if you can't repair something there and then, that's actually a really significant business problem. It's even um, a problem for those of us who have mobiles and want to replace our batteries. And um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, so absolutely. Of, mm. I mean, it really has, um, like I say, it's really about business interest and it's not about, you know, what what works best for the consumer. It's all about, you know, let's, let's force the consumer when something breaks to either replace the unit or spend a small fortune having us yeah. replace it. And it, it, it's so wasteful. You have, to, you have to wonder what Ada Lovelace, who was able to, um, to write a computer program without a computer and um, <laughs> foresee everything and um, understand systems and really truly own them in her own mind. You, you have to wonder what she would think about things today. Yeah, Ada was uh, very much someone who spoke her mind. Um, she she did not hold back. She was um, pretty forthright. I think Ada would be um, right alongside us. I think she would be there with her mobile phone, kind of taking it apart regardless. Yeah, um, yeah. just to figure out how it works and flashing open um, open source uh, firmware and everything else. So oh, great, yeah. <laughs> and maybe even helping write the firmware. So, well, thank you so much, Sue, for joining us. It's been an excellent call. And um, for those who are interested, how can they find out more about Ada Lovelace Day? So we uh, we are on the internet, findingada dot com. Um, we're on Twitter at findingada. Uh, we're on Facebook, um, uh, facebook dot com slash Ada Lovelace Day. Um, I say we've got uh, a mailing list on our website if you want to keep up with news by the old-fashioned uh, email. Um, and we've got a Facebook group for um, anybody who is interested in organizing events um, or if you organize a mailing list or yeah. meetups or anything for women in STEM. Okay, and um, the event itself is just under just over six months away, so tell everyone when to yeah. put in their calendars. It is, yes, it's always the second Tuesday of October, so it's the 9th of October this year, okay. and Ada Lovelace Day Live will be at the IEP in London at the Savoy Place Lecture Theatre. Okay. So well, 
Great. We, we will be re- releasing news about that as we have it. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Sue. And um, you can find out more about the Restart Project at therestartproject.org. Uh, thanks to OptoNoise and Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers, plastic spinning discs, and discard electronics. Thank you.